Welcome back to Amplify, the podcast corollary to EB Medicine's emergency medicine practice. I'm Jeff Nussbaum, and I'm back with my co-host, Nachi Gupta. For our regular listeners, you probably noticed a lapse in recent episodes as we pulled away from our usual monthly releases. With both of us having increased demands, myself with business school and the busiest 21-month-old in the world, and Nachi with yet another entrepreneurial endeavor on the horizon, we decided that it would be best to pass the podcast on to another host so Amplify can continue to create and deliver the highest quality materials you guys deserve. We've obviously really enjoyed creating this podcast and working closely with EB Medicine to produce it. We're deeply appreciative of you, our listeners, and your wonderful feedback and comments over the years. Without you, there would be no point in us working so hard on this. And keep the feedback coming as we hand the reins over to Dr. Sam Ashu as the new host of Amplify. Dr. Ashu is an emergency physician based out of the Tallahassee, Florida area with a keen interest in informatics who's been featured on several other podcasts you may have heard. We can't think of a better person to take over for Amplify. I'm sure you all really like him and the content he produces. And with that, let's get started on our final scheduled episode of Amplify. As we're just about to see one of the busiest travel days of the year, that's the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, we thought that there would be no better time to discuss the September 2019 issue of Emergency Medicine Practice, assisting with air travel medical emergencies, responsibilities, and pitfalls. This was a fantastic issue, thanks to the hard work of Drs. Delaney and Green, both of the University of Alabama Birmingham School of Medicine. Thanks as well to their peer editors, Dr. Knight and Dr. Hill of the University of Cincinnati. And I think you have a bit of a disclosure this month? Well, this is certainly a first. Finally, at the point in my career where I get to announce a disclosure, though it's honestly more of a conflict of interest than an actual disclosure, but still certainly worth noting. I currently spend some of my time working for STAT-MD, which is an airline consultation service run by the Center for Emergency Medicine and the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Though I'm certainly a junior member of the team, in some sense, I've responded to nearly 500 in-flight emergencies over the last two years. And obviously, this puts you in a particularly nice position to share some extra information with our listeners this month. I'll have more questions scattered throughout the episode for you. Sounds great. So let's dive in, starting with what I think is the most important point of the issue. Qualified, active, licensed, and sober providers should volunteer to assist in the event of a medical emergency rather than decline out of fear of medical legal concerns. I couldn't agree more. So let me just reiterate that. Please trust the evidence and volunteer to help should you hear the call. We'll get to this in a bit, but there is little medical legal concern and you owe it to the sick passenger to help. So what are the chances you'll actually be called? Well, they're not particularly high, but certainly not negligible either. In 2019, of the 4 billion passengers expected to fly, there will be an estimated 60,000 medical emergencies. That means there'll be about one emergency per every 604 flights. So I fly about four times a month. At four times a month, over the next 12 years, I can expect about one medical emergency. Already excited. Let's start with some physiology. Cabin pressurization varies, but is typically equivalent to an altitude of 8,000 feet. And this has a huge effect. In one study of healthy volunteers, this change in pressure resulted in a 4 to 10 point decrease in oxygen saturation and up to a 35 point drop in arterial oxygen partial pressure from 95 millimeters of mercury just to 60. In another study of healthy volunteers on a long haul flight, this change caused 7% of passengers to report symptoms consistent with acute altitude illness. And due to the principles of Boyle's Law, decreased cabin pressure also causes expansion of gases within anatomical spaces in the body, such as the eye, GI tract, sinuses, middle ear, etc. This expansion can potentially threaten surrounding structures. So there must be specific guidelines for patients who are recently post-op for flying, right? There certainly are, but I don't think we need to get into the weeds on this one since nobody listening will likely be doing pre-flight screenings. 
I think one thing to remember here is that though cabins are pressurized to several thousand feet, they can be pressurized even further if necessary. The airlines don't do this because it takes a tremendous quantity of fuel to do so, but if pressurization will defer a diversion, this option may pique their interest. Though an anecdote, the only time I've ever suggested it is on a flight for someone recent post-op eye surgery who went blind mid-flight. We pressurized the cabin from 8,000 to 4,000 feet and then finally to sea level and his vision spontaneously returned. Pretty cool stuff. But getting back to the text, next we have air quality. Only 50% of in-flight air is recirculated. All of the flow is compartmentalized between sections of rows, and all the air is run through a HEPA filter. The authors note that the air is actually comparable to that of an operating room. Then why are people always getting sick after flying? Well, it's hard to prove, but experts believe that most post-flight respiratory illnesses are likely caused by exposure to fomites on high-risk surfaces of airplanes and throughout the airport, like the trays on the back of your seat. Interesting. It's also worth noting that the air is quite dry, though this is unlikely to produce any clinically significant effects. Most of the dehydration that occurs is more likely due to the inadequate water intake and excess caffeine and alcohol consumption, depending on the time of day, of course. Don't judge. Even though it may be 8 a.m., some of our night shift locums friends may prefer an airport cocktail after a long week away. Oh, I'm not judging. Facts only over here. Anyway, let's move on to a little epidemiology. Syncope and cardiac events account for a large proportion of in-flight emergencies, with cardiac events occurring for the largest percentage of diversions. GI, endocrine, and respiratory emergencies follow syncope and cardiac events, with specific percentages varying based on which study you look at. Thankfully, obstetric emergencies are relatively rare, accounting for less than a tenth of a percent of all emergencies. And lastly, trauma and substance abuse-related complaints have also been reported, but represent only a small percentage of in-flight emergencies. I think that covers the main pathologies you might encounter. Next, we should touch upon the actual responders. Physicians reportedly respond 44% of the time, followed by nurses at 20%, and EMS providers at about 4%. Interestingly, despite physicians being there only 44% of the time, they're involved in the care for over 70% of diversions. It might seem crazy, but that's definitely been my experience. Many physicians, especially non-ED physicians, are not familiar with caring for the acutely ill patient. Additionally, many physicians are very uncomfortable actually witnessing someone syncopize right before their eyes and then immediately checking their vital signs and finding the passenger to be bradycardic and hypotensive, as is the case with many patients immediately after a vasovagal syncopal episode. I cannot tell you how many times we get called by pilots considering diversion based on a physician's request only to have the symptoms completely resolve in just 10 minutes with no serious interventions. Be patient. This is a common in-flight pathology. And your experience has not failed you. Data from your own group show that 31% of cases resolved before arrival. Even in cases where EMS was requested, patients were only transported 37% of the time, and of those, only 8% were actually admitted for further workup. Death is also a very rare phenomena, occurring in approximately 3 out of every 1,000 cases. All right, so let's move on to the actual logistics of responding. Each airline has its own protocols and policies with respect to medical responders. Some will require credentials, others may not. In some instances, you may be the first responder. In others, the flight crew may have already been in contact with their ground-based medical control. In terms of supplies, the FAA requires an emergency medical kit and an AED on all commercial flights. These kits can only be opened under the direction from a medical professional on the ground or on board. And while airlines may add additional drugs at their discretion, the FAA mandates certain supplies. You can remember these supplies by thinking of the five A's. 
asthma, allergy, altered mental status, ACS, and ACLS. The five A's should help you remember the bronchodilators, epinephrine, antihistamine, dextrose, nitroglycerin, aspirin, and lidocaine as the only antiarrhythmic typically available. Of course, there are also gloves, an IV start kit, and a few other basic supplies. And AEDs, which are required, have been so since 2001. Amazingly, when a shock was delivered in flight, 40% survived to hospital discharge with a good outcome. Justice on the ground, witness arrests with shockable rhythms do very well with good BLS care alone. And lastly, airlines also have a portable oxygen tank in addition to the emergency oxygen that is stored in the event of cabin depressurization. The exact quantity varies by flight, but portable cylinders are certainly available. Next, we have to talk about a topic that I'm sure most of you have wondered about. What are the medical legal risks of intervening? As with most incidents of concern over medical legal risk, we really shouldn't be too concerned over the potential legal ramifications. Though we'll get into the specifics, the short answer is that you should definitely volunteer your services. There are lots of protections in place with a paucity of case reports of legal action against medical volunteers who volunteer in flight. Perhaps most important, remember that ultimately the captain is in charge and you are functioning in a strictly advisory capacity. Remember that most airlines can handle most emergencies with their ground-based medical control, their typical staff, and predefined protocols. You are an added bonus. For many ED providers, functioning as a consultant will be very unfamiliar. I mean, I guess if I'm a consultant, I'm going to demand a white count before seeing the patient, as I'm fairly certain that's rule number one in consultancy school. No, I'm pretty sure it's actually rule number 12, but nice try. Now get out of your seat and come and see the passenger. They need your help. But back to medical legal issues. In the United States... Healthcare professionals are protected by the Good Samaritan Law and the 1998 Federal Aviation Medical Assistance Act. The Good Samaritan Law provides legal protection to medical providers who perform their services in response to medical emergencies outside of the hospital. The exact verbiage of the law differs from state to state, but all 50 states have some version of it in their legislation. Similarly, the Aviation Medical Assistance Act applies to, quote, medically qualified individuals and offers broad medical legal protections to the airlines in the event that a medical volunteer is accused of malpractice, as well as to the medical providers who respond to an in-flight emergency. More specifically, the act states that, quote, an individual shall not be liable for damages arising out of the acts or omissions of the individual in providing or attempting to provide assistance in the case of an in-flight medical emergency, unless the individual, while rendering such assistance, is guilty of gross negligence or willful misconduct. That's a bit of a mouthful and almost certainly a run-on sentence, but basically you need to remember that the AMAA protects you from everything shy of gross negligence. Because of this, there have been no reports to date of a medical professional falling below that standard. There is, however, one caveat that we should mention. Don't forget about your own mental status. For example, if you've taken sleeping aids or had any alcoholic drinks. Though this may not preclude you completely from rendering care, do so only with extreme caution. And I don't think we were clear enough about this up front. Up until this point, we've been mostly talking about U.S.-based flights on U.S. carriers. Flights run by international airlines are a somewhat different ballgame for a number of reasons. First, medication kits will vary widely. Many will carry medications similar to those mandated by the FDA, but there certainly are no international standards. Next, the availability of ground-based medical consultation is similarly widely variable, with many in the Middle East contracting for this service and almost no airlines in Africa offering such services. And lastly, with respect to legal risk, the international laws also vary widely. According to French law, for example, a French physician who does not volunteer may be committing willful negligence. Similar laws exist in Germany, Australia, and Canada. However, proving you were there and refused to provide care, that could be quite difficult. 
Lastly, it's unclear to determine which country's laws apply when. For example, is it the sending country's laws, the receiving country's laws, or the country whose airspace you're currently in? All excellent points. Next, we're moving to my favorite topic of the article, diversion. This is a tremendously complicated topic, and I think the authors handled it really well. Remember, the decision to divert is multifactorial, and you are only there to communicate your medical opinion about the passenger. Leave the decision for diversion up to the flight crew. I cannot stress this enough. Getting on the radio with the pilot and ground-based medical control and demanding a diversion is often very unhelpful and simply not the right approach and can really be quite costly. All of this is so interesting. I can't believe you do this for a living and divert planes. Can you go into a bit more detail about everything the pilot considers when they're thinking about diverting? So there's really quite a bit to get into, but I can touch on some of the main considerations. I think first you need to understand that the decision is made by the pilot, the ground-based medical control, the airline's operations, and dispatchers as well. You also need to consider the medical needs of the passenger. Can he or she be temporized to get you to the destination? Is there a suitable airport for diversion with an accessible local hospital with all the required resources? Logistically, you need to find an airport that can not only safely accommodate the plane you are on, but also one in which the airline can actually refuel and guarantee that the passengers and crew are safe there. Remember that if you're on an A380, there are only so many airports with runways long enough for a safe landing. Fun fact, planes also take off heavy, with tons of fuel that will be burned prior to landing. So say you were to take off from London, bound for the United States. To turn around and land back in London, Heathrow, just after takeoff, you may have to dump literally thousands of gallons of fuel to get the plane to a safe weight for landing. Alternatively, you may have to fly in circles for some time to burn fuel off in planes that aren't capable of dumping. A heavy landing necessitates a thorough maintenance overhaul of the landing gear and can cost the airlines not only money, but significant time, which is equally, if not more valuable than actual money. And speaking of cost, while exact costs are unknown, one airline estimates that the cost can be as high as $600,000. We're not dealing with small numbers here. No, definitely not. That's why it's so frustrating when medical volunteers demand the plane divert without talking through the medical scenario with the crew and ground-based control. Often temporizing measures are simply adequate. And we began to allude to this earlier, but physicians actually advise diversion more frequently at 9% of the time, followed by EMS providers and nurses. When the airlines are left to their own means, they divert at rates roughly half that, at just 5% of the time. At half a million dollars for some of these diversions and an overall very low level of morbidity and mortality, a 50% reduction amounts to massive savings for possibly no clinical difference. I can't stress this enough. You're a consultant helping the captain and the ground-based medical control come to the most appropriate plan of action. When your advice causes the airlines to deviate from their standard protocols, that's where they potentially run into trouble. And there are two controversies to discuss this month, and I actually think they're extremely pertinent. The first one relates to using personal medication or medications from other passengers. Given the relative paucity of medications in most airline medical kits, it may occur to you that someone else may have a helpful medication on board. While there's no strict rule against this, it could result in an increased level of scrutiny if there is an adverse event. So consider this a last resort. The next controversy to discuss is the issue of gifts from the airlines. There is a widespread belief that accepting gifts from the airlines would void legal protections. To date, there is ample airlines-based data to suggest that medical providers' legal protections are not negated in the event that the airline wanted to reward a medical volunteer. Additionally, there are no reported cases of providers losing medical protection for receiving compensation for their services in flight. Interestingly, some international carriers even offer points or other bonuses for registering as a medical volunteer. While I'm hesitant to call this controversy a myth, it seems like there really isn't much evidence to support it. 
Agreed. Don't expect a gift, but if you do receive one, you can keep it and enjoy it without concern for your legal protections. All right, so that wraps up the new material for this special edition of Amplify. Let's close out with some key points and clinical pearls. Aircraft cabins are typically pressurized to about 8,000 feet, resulting in a 4 to 10 point drop in oxygen saturation in healthy adults, as well as myalgias, fatigue, and generalized discomfort on long haul flights. Only 50% of cabin air is recirculated. When recirculated, it's subject to HEPA filtration, which is adequate to prevent infection by airborne pathogens, but not the infectious respiratory viruses that are spread by droplets. Dehydration on long-haul flights is likely due to inadequate water intake and the increased use of diuretics such as caffeine and alcohol. There is about one in-flight emergency per 11,000 passengers or one in 604 flights. Syncope and cardiac events are the most common, followed by GI, respiratory, and neurologic events. Most in-flight emergencies are minor. When EMS is requested upon arrival, roughly one-third are transported and less than 10% are admitted, with mortality estimated at 0.3% of cases. AEDs are required on all U.S.-based flights. Airlines have a limited supply of supplemental oxygen for use in medical emergencies, in addition to that provided to the entire plane in the event that the cabin becomes depressurized. All U.S. airlines have some form of ground-based medical assistance. Ultimately, any decisions are the responsibility of the pilot in command. Medical volunteers function in a strictly advisory capacity. Medical volunteers are protected by both the Good Samaritan Law and the 1998 Aviation Medical Assistance Act. The Aviation Medical Assistance Act protects medically qualified individuals unless they are guilty of gross negligence or willful misconduct. International laws and protections vary widely. In some European countries, for a physician to not offer their services during an in-flight emergency may constitute willful negligence. The decision to divert is multifactorial and can cost as much as $600,000 in certain circumstances. When physicians and EMS providers respond to an in-flight emergency, diversion rates are nearly double that of when the airlines work solely with their ground-based medical support, increasing diversion events from 5 to 9%. It's largely a myth that accepting any gift or payment after responding to an in-flight emergency would void your legal protection. The AMAA has no language regarding compensation, and to date, there are no such reported cases of lost legal protection. And that's the end of this month's episode of Amplify, assisting with air travel medical emergencies. This also marks the end of our run as your hosts. Over the past three years, we've thoroughly enjoyed hosting Amplify and having the unique opportunity to share high-quality evidence-based medicine with you all. As healthcare continues to move towards a quality-over-quantity paradigm, understanding evidence-based practice will be increasingly more important. And we thank you all for giving us your ears and your time to help hone your clinical practice. Naturally, a big thanks also goes out to all the contributors to emergency medicine practice, authors, peer reviewers, and of course, the kind and thoughtful staff at EB Medicine. And we have no doubt that Dr. Shu, who will be taking over shortly, will keep you on the edge of your seat as he brings new material to you. Couldn't be more excited for him to be our successor. As always, additional materials are available on our website for emergency medicine practice subscribers. If you're not a subscriber, consider joining today. You can find out more at ebmedicine.net slash subscribe. Subscribers get in-depth articles on hundreds of emergency medicine topics, concise summaries of the articles, calculators and risk scores, and CME credit. You'll also get enhanced access to the podcast, including any images and tables mentioned. PAs and NPs, make sure to use the code APP4 at checkout to save 50%. The... You heard throughout the episode corresponds to answers to the CME questions. Lastly, be sure to find us on iTunes and rate us and leave comments there. You can also email us directly at amplify at ebmedicine.net. 